Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Alter Rebbe's introduction to the Tanya, and he calls it the Akdames Hamalaket, compiler's forward. All he calls himself is a compiler, just a collector of sayings. He doesn't even write his name, doesn't sign his name. Anonymous, anonymous author. And this is a letter that was sent to all Anash, members of our fellowship. May God, our stronghold, bless and guard them. And as we discussed the other week, that the 54, 53 chapters of the Tanya, together with the introduction, correspond to the 54 Torah portions. So the introduction corresponds to Bereshia's Genesis, which is the first, and the, and the introduction to the entire Torah. This letter is actually the introduction to the whole Tanya. And if you really study the letter very well, it's a very, very powerful letter an unusual, unique letter. It really gives us an insight into how the Tanya is unique, what makes the Tanya unique. It's understated. Many people just read the letter and they read it very superficially and they don't really grasp the revolution and the st yeah. statement of what al Rebbe is saying here. al Rebbe, in his very modest way, is really giving us the true introduction to who, what the Tanya is. What a unique book the Tanya is. Unlike any other Sefer. And this is a letter that was written to the Hasidim, which are called Anash. Anash is an acronym in Hebrew for three Hebrew words. Ansheh members of our fellowship. As we have seen from the title page, the Alter Rebbe perceives himself as a mere compiler rather than as an author. Being a letter sent to all Anash, members of our fellowship, i.e. the Chassidim, may God, our stronghold, bless and guard them. To you, worthy men, do I call. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek God, and may the Almighty listen to you, both great in spiritual stature and small, all Anash in our land and in nearby countries. May each in his own place achieve peace and eternal life. Amen. May this be his will. This is the introduction. And now we come to the meat of the letter on page 16. And basically, the Alter Rebbe is addressing a complaint that the Hasidim had. The Tanya is a collection of sayings and a device that the Alter Rebbe dispensed over a period of 20 years. And the Tanya is now going to displace that, that opportunity. Before, if a chassid had a spiritual problem, a spiritual issue, he would make an appointment to see the Alter Rebbe and he discussed his spiritual dilemma with the Alter Rebbe, and the Alter Rebbe guided him and advised him. A yechidus. A yechidus. 
now the Alter Rebbe, the Hasidic community grew exponentially and it became physically impossible to meet each and every individual, to meet them in a private audience. And this is not a one-minute encounter. This is a very in-depth encounter where the Hasid lays beers his heart and his soul before the Alter Rebbe and the Alter Rebbe would touch his soul and guide him and um, give him guidance for the rest of his life. So this was a very, very intimate encounter, very deep, very personal. It took a lot of preparation from the Hasid's part and it took a tremendous effort from the Rebbe's part because the Rebbe would encounter the Hasid, meet the Hasid, and help him coax the answer out of the chassid. As we said earlier, the whole approach of the Alter Rebbe was the long, short way. You have two types of teachers. You have a teacher, when you ask him a question, the teacher gives you the answer. Brilliant answer. It's a brilliant teacher. But, but the true teacher is not the teacher who gives you the answer but the teacher who coaxes the answer out of you shows you that you know the answer. That's much more, that takes a lot more effort. And it may not be as dazzling, but how much more enriching. What a brilliant teacher. What a genuine teacher. Who's not just giving the answer and giving, providing the best answer, most brilliant answer, but is showing the student how to answer his own questions, showing the student how to how to um, find the answers within himself. Because if the student would never have the answer, he would never have the question. The fact that the student has the, the question tells me that he already has the answer within him. Otherwise, he would never have the question in the first place. So the Alter Rebbe is showing the student how to be self-sufficient, how to help himself. That takes time. That takes, yeah, that you have to really Put yourself in the other person's shoes. Listen to the other person. Encounter the other person. Help the other person encounter himself. It's a very intimate experience. It's a very time-consuming experience. When, when the Hasidic community grew as a result of all the years of the Alter Rebbe teaching and the Hasidic movement grew and flourished and took root in Russia, it became physically impossible to encounter each individual Hasid to have this personal encounter. So the Alter Rebbe collected these sayings and he's telling the Hasidim that these sayings are a collection of, of advice that I've been giving over the last 20 years. So now that I am publishing it in the book form, there's no need any longer for you to come and visit me in person since it's impossible, physically impossible anyway, you'll have, you'll find everything that you're looking for, you'll find in this book. Now, the Anash, the Hasidim, were very unhappy. They loved the book, mind you, but they argued that it's no substitute for the real life encounter. It's like learning hearing a lecture online is no substitute for sitting, <laughs> sitting around the table live and interacting and learning. Multiply that. 
when it comes to something so personal, so intimate, a person who is seeking, who is searching, who has spiritual dilemmas, who is trying to find a path in life, guidance, you can't compare book learning to real life learning, to real life interaction. When you're sitting with a guide, a mentor, a rebbe, a teacher who loves you, who has the wisdom to guide you and to help you help yourself and to coax the answer out of you and to really help you encounter yourself perhaps for the first time in your life, your inner depth, your inner richness. Tap into that inner richness that we all possess, that divine spark we all have. How can you compare that? How can you substitute this for a book? The feelings in that day. There's no feeling, there's no... Right, a book, a book is a book. Yeah. That's their argument. So that's what Dalta Rebbe addresses. In this letter, Dalta Rebbe is addressing the lamentation and the argument of the chassid that, that they're going to miss the yechidus. This, is, this they, they argue, is a very poor substitute to the real thing. And Dalta Rebbe spends the first half of the letter, he spends taking the side of the chassid. He's arguing their case. He says, they have a very strong argument that you can't compare book knowledge to real life. And now he's going to spend explaining, elaborating, <clears throat> clarifying and deepening the question of the chassid. How their, their question is a very legitimate question. How can you substitute real life, one-on-one, soul-to-soul talk, to reading a book, no matter how great the book is. There's a metaphor for Torah now, between people and Hashem versus Torah. Well, well, here he's not speaking in metaphors. Here it's actually a real life, when you're able to sit with the Rebbe, and you're able to sit and discuss it with the Rebbe, how could you um, substitute that with, with book learning? And now he's going to go into this, on page, top of page 16. It is well known that all Anash are wont to say, that hearing words of moral guidance from a teacher addressing his student individually and directly is not the same as seeing and reading such guidance in books, which are impersonal and addressed to the reading audience at large. The spoken word will have far greater effect than the written word for two reasons. The first, for the reader who gains such instruction in books, will read it after his own manner and mind, and will absorb the written message according to his mental grasp and comprehension at that particular time. Hence, if his intellect and mind are confused and wander about in darkness and ideas pertaining to the service of God, he will find it difficult to see the beneficial light hidden in books, although this light be pleasant to the eyes and therapeutic for the soul. In the case of personal guidance, on the other hand, the mentor can ensure that his message is understood fully and correctly. He's saying the first problem is if the person needs help in the first place, then he doesn't have the clarity to appreciate and to see, to see what's right and what's wrong and to... What's meant by the author. And what's meant by the author. So if he's, if he's reading the book with his confused mind, even if the book is the antidote to his problems, the book has the, the, the remedy for his problem. It has the perfect remedy. The book has the answer. The book addresses his particular malady. But, and dysfunction, but... If his mind is confused, he won't see it in the book. Just like his mind is confused in general, his mind, we won't have the clarity to be able to appreciate the, the remedy that's found in the book. So even if the book is perfect, but the problem is the reader. When the Rebbe is sitting with the Chassid one-on-one, 
the Rebbe could adjust his comments. He can see if the chassid is, if it's registering, if the person, if it's resonating, if the person gets it, if the person, if they're communicating. He can establish a rapport. He can adjust it. But when the author, when the Rebbe speaks through the book, the book is, it is what it is. The Rebbe is not there in person. So even if, if the answer is there, the Rebbe gave the brilliant answer. The prescription is there. But the reader is not likely that he'll be able to, to get that out of the book. So the book won't help. That's, that's the first point. Even if the book was perfect. Now he's going to bring a second point. That a book by its very nature is very limited. Books by their very nature are very limited. Even the best books. The Alter Rebbe now points out a second disadvantage in written advice. By its very nature, its ability to inspire even the understanding reader is restricted to a specific audience. A book does not allow for the subjective differences between one's reader's character and another's. It will, of necessity, leave some of its readership untouched. The Alter Rebbe next distinguishes between two categories of inspirational books. In those books belonging to the first category, this problem is more obvious and acute. In those of the second category, less so. The first category embraces those books that argue for pious conduct on grounds of human intellect. These will surely not affect all readers equally. Owing to the diversity of mind and temperament among readers, what profoundly inspires one reader will leave another indifferent. The second category comprises those works founded on the teachings of our sages. It would seem at first glance that in such books the problem of subjective differences between readers would be irrelevant. Since they are based on Torah, which is pertinent to every Jew without exception, surely every Jew could be guided and inspired by them. The Alter Rebbe points out, however, that not every Jew is privileged to find his place in Torah and to derive the instruction applicable to him as an individual. Thus the problem still obtains, though to a lesser degree. Aside from this aforementioned possibility that the reader's intellectual shortcomings may prevent him from perceiving the light concealed in the holy books, there is yet another difficulty. Those books on piety founded on human intelligence surely do not affect all people equally, for not all intellects and minds are alike. And the intellect of one man is not affected and aroused by that which affects and arouses the intellect of another. Every one of us thinks differently that no two people look alike, which is a reflection of the fact that no two people think alike. We process information differently. You can go around the room and talk about the same experience and you'll get 20 different responses. The same experience, what it means to you, how it affects you, how it touches you. And that, you know, that's the beauty of our individuality. Every one of us is such an individual. You, tech, you stop ten, 10 Jews and ask them what Shabbat means to them, you'll get 10 different responses. And that's the beauty of it. Even though externally we're all doing the same thing, but the way it hits you and the way it touches you, the way it moves you and what it means to you is so different because our minds are different, our hearts are different, what touches us, uh, each one of us is touched in a different way. So if the author was inspired, a certain aspect of Judaism touched him in a certain way and inspired him, it could leave the other person cold and indifferent. You know, it doesn't ignite anything. It doesn't spark anything. So such a book is inherently limited. So even the best book, the most inspirational book, written by the best author, it can touch one person, and it can leave the other person cold. Not that there's anything wrong with a book, but it's humanly impossible. You cannot, in a book format, you cannot. The best author cannot reach everyone, because 
he can only reach a person who is of his own temperament, a person who thinks like him, a person who gets excited about the same thing he gets excited about. So excited about. So, you know, even the best books reach a very limited audience, a very, a very target audience. So, the best inspirational Jewish inspirational books are inherently limited. As our sages have said, in reference to the blessing of he who is wise in secrets ordained by the sages to be recited on witnessing a gathering of 600,000 Jews, whereby we praise God's omniscience in knowing the secrets of them all. For their minds, i.e. thoughts, opinions, and feelings, are all different from one another. So too does Ramban, of blessed memory, explain the reason for the blessing in his Milchamot, elaborating on the comment of Sifre on the verse describing Joshua as a man in whom there is spirit. Sifre explains that he was able to meet the spirit of every man. There is a special blessing that's mentioned in the Talmud. When a person sees 600,000 Jews corresponding to the number of adult males that left Egypt, you have to make a special blessing. That he who is wise and secrets, that God knows the secrets of every single person, every single individual, although you have a community, a gathering of 600,000 Jews, and yet God knows each individual Jew personally, his most private thoughts, most innermost thoughts, most innermost struggles and dilemmas and conflicts, and God feels, experiences, knows, is there with us in our struggles, feels our pain. And um, so this is a blessing that you make when you see 600,000 Jews. And Nachmanides explains, it says when Moshe was looking for a successor, when God took an oath that Moshe will not enter into the promised land, so Moshe asked that God should choose a successor, someone who is a man of spirit. So Rashi and Nachmanides explain that he means he should choose a leader who can meet every person, who can speak and converse to each individual Jew on their own personal level. And the Jew feels that the leader is speaking to them, understands them, is speaking to them. This was a special quality that Moshe had. When Moshe spoke, even though he spoke, addressed the entire Jewish people, every Jew felt that he was talking to him, as if he was talking personally to him. And Nachmanides says that there is a possibility. There, are, there were certain sages that they were the equivalent of 600,000 Jews because they were special souls, what we call general souls. They were like the brain of the Jewish people, the mind of the Jewish people. The Jewish people like a living organism, one dynamic organism, and Moshe Rabbeinu was the brain, the mind of the Jewish people, just like the brain and the mind is the command and control center of the whole organism. It contains within it the whole organism, and it senses the whole organism and coordinates the whole organism and instills in every organ in the body a sense that it's part of something larger than itself. It's part of one dynamic whole entity, and that every organ interacts and interrelates and is interconnected with all other organs and therefore the same blood circulates between all, all the organs and the whole body is connected. Your toenail hurts, your brain can't think. This sense of wholeness, of, of, um, this is instilled through the mind and the brain. That's why 
the brain and the mind is the leader and the command and control center of the entire system. That's what happens when there's a stroke. There's a disconnect between the brain and the organs. The organs stop responding to the brain and stop responding to each other. And that, that's a, that could be a fatal illness. Um, so there are certain leaders who are the equivalent of 600,000 Jews. Because since they are general souls, collective souls, they contain within themselves all individual souls. And that's why they're able to speak to each individual Jew. Just like the brain and the mind is able to communicate to the toenail, to the last hair in the body, to every organ is able to communicate in its own language. A liver is a liver and, and a... And the pancreas is a pancreas, and the heart is a heart, and uh, every organ, every part of the body has its role and its mission, and the mind communicates its individual um, instructions to that, to that individual um, organ. So to the general soul, the soul of the Moshe Rabbein, of, of that particular generation, who is the general soul, who is the Rebbe. Rebbe is an acronym of Rosh B'nai Yisrael, the brain, the mind of the Jewish people, the heart and mind of the Jewish people. He is able to communicate with each individual Jew. Now, Nachmadari says, halachically, we do not make this blessing. Theoretically, we should make this blessing not only when you see a multitude of 600,000 Jews, but theoretically, you should make this blessing if you meet a Jew who contains within himself 600,000 souls. He's a collective soul. So theoretically, if you met Moshe Rabbeinu, if you met, if you met the Rebbe, you should ha have to make this blessing because it would be the equivalent of meeting 600,000 souls. Halachically, we only make this blessing. We're only required to make this blessing. We're only allowed to make this blessing only if you physically, there's a collection of 600,000 Jews together. Because we... Objectively, we cannot discern, we don't know who is the soul who, who has 600,000, who contains 600,000. But at least theoretically, we understand this concept that this is what Moshe was looking for. Moshe asked Hashem not just to appoint a leader. A Jewish leader is not a CEO of a company. A Jewish leader is not just a person with leadership qualities. A Jewish leader is the brain, the mind of the Jewish people. He is the collective soul that senses the whole, the whole of the Jew. Klal Yisrael, the sense of whole, the holistic sense of the Jewish whole. Where each individual Jew plays an, a, a distinguished part, an um, indispensable part within the whole of the Jewish people. And therefore, that particular leader is able to speak to each individual Jew. And we saw this with the Rebbe. How the Rebbe was able to communicate and speak Nobel Prize winners, to scientists, to rabbis, greatest Torah scholars, greatest physicists, to cobblers, to tailors, to simple people, to janitors, able to speak to every Jew, no matter who they were, where they were coming from, which background they were coming from. He was able to speak to everyone. And they felt as the Rebbe was speaking to them, like directly to them, to their situation, to their reality. He felt them, he knew them, and he encountered them and met them from the inside out. So this is the quality that Moshe, Rabbe, that Moshe Rabbeinu was asking for. He was able to meet the spirit of every man. And this is a unique, unique quality. But other than 
Moshe Rabbeinu or Yehoshua or those special souls all other souls, individual souls are rooted in different parts of the Jewish organism so the hand, what inspires the hand so to speak is not going to inspire the foot every organ is different so the author is writing to a very limited audience because what touches him, what inspires him, what excites him what moves him is not going to move or inspire another Jew. Not because of any fault of the author. Not because the author didn't perform brilliantly and write a beautiful book and, and a perfect book and to the best of his ability. But there's an inherent limitation. The author could only inspire a soul that's made up of the same temperament as him, who thinks the same way as him, who gets excited about the same things in the same, the same way. You know, and, that's, and that's part of life. You know, what, what one person finds funny, another person doesn't find funny. You know, what, one, what, what interests you is not what interests someone else. We all have different interests, different hobbies, different things that touch us, that move us. That's just human nature. That's the way Hashem created it. 600,000 Jews have a million point two opinions. If the author is, is a person who falls in that category of speaking to 600,000 Jews, then what he writes has the same effect because it reaches all 600,000. Okay, so when they read you're, it, you're, you're leaping ahead. You're coming to the answer. But oh. first, first Al-Tarebi is, is building up the question. Oh, so the Hasidim are asking a question. He said that there is, firstly, even, the, even if the book was perfect and the book had all the answers everything that that individual was looking for the reader is not in the position to be able to find the answer doesn't have the clarity of mind to appreciate the answer that's A B there's an inherent limitation the book itself by nature must be limited because the book could only reach a certain audience every book is limited an author cannot consider himself a failure if, it's, if he doesn't reach 100% 100% of the audience because he can't. We're all so different. And legitimately. And what excites you won't excite me. So every, audi every author has to find his audience. But you can't write a universal book. The Alter Rebbe was writing the book of Tanya to act as a universal book. To answer all the dilemmas, all the spiritual dilemmas that all of his Hasidim have as diverse as they may be. And this is meant to be a substitute for the private one-on-one -on -one spiritual audience. And the Hasidim complained, he says, it's no substitute, it's a very poor substitute. Because when the Rebbe is meeting the Hasid, the Rebbe could find the language to find what, what will inspire you, to, what will trigger, what will evoke a response, to communicate, to get to you, to reach you and communicate clearly and effectively that you'll get it and you'll grasp and you'll have the answer that, you, that you're, you're looking for. But to give a chassid a book and say, oh, you have a problem, a spiritual problem, and don't forget, a spiritual problem is much deeper than a physical problem. A physical problem, we can find a physical cure, but a spiritual problem is an anguish of the soul. If your soul is in anguish and you feel disturbed or unsettled or restless or... That's much, that affects you much, much deeper. And ultimately that can affect you physically as well. So you can't, 
it's like a doctor saying, you know, don't come to the office. Here, take this book. <laughs> take this medical book. And you'll have all the answers exactly what you're looking for. You'll find in this book. How can you substitute a personal visit? Besides, half of the cure is just being with the doctor. You know, just, just that comfort and that, and that, and that care and that, that sense of professionalism and knowledge and immersion and health and that trust. You imagine you have a, you have a, a, a serious illness and the doctor says, yeah, here, I'll send you a book. <laughs> you'll find everything you're looking for, you'll find in the book. It's on his bedside now. <laughs> So this is, this is the question that the Hasidim had. It's a very serious question. And Dr. Rebbe is addressing this question. He's not ignoring this question. He's not saying, well, sorry. I have no choice. There are t- just too many Hasidim. There are only 24 hours in the day. And it's simply impossible. So I, I have no choice. I can't see everyone. So I have no choice but to write a book. Here is the book. It's the best I can do. No, Dr. Rebbe is arguing that this book is sufficient. And he's addressing the complaint of the Hasid. And he's building their question. A, there is an inherent limitation within the reader, even if the book has the perfect answer. But secondly, the Hasidim argument, there's, there's an inherent limitation in the book itself. The book simply cannot address every Hasid, every situation. Because what you put on paper is, is cut and dry. And the angle that inspired you and what moved you is not going to inspire someone else. So this is regarding books that are based on human intellect. Now he's coming to books based on Torah. Based on the Bible, on the Torah, on the Gemara, on the Talmud, on the Midrash. But even those works of Musar, whose foundation is in the peaks of holiness meaning that they are founded on the Midrashim of our sages, in whom the Spirit of God speaks and His Word is on their tongues, even in the case of such works, the aforementioned problem obtains. For although Torah and the Holy One, blessed be He, are one, and all 600,000 general souls of Israel and the individual souls that are their offshoots, down to even the soul spark residing within the most worthless and least estimable members of our people, the children of Israel, are all bound up with the Torah, and the Torah is what binds them to God. Every single Jew inherits the entire Torah. This is expressed by the Jewish law that states that a Jew that studies any portion of the Torah is obligated to make a blessing. A birchat Torah, he has to make a blessing before he studies Torah, because Torah belongs to each and every Jew. Every part of the Torah. So every letter in the Torah, every word in the Torah, every concept in the Torah, every line in the Midrash, every line in the Talmud, every line in the, in the Chumash, in the 24 books of the Bible, of the Torah, every one of those words speaks directly to each and every Jew. So you don't have this limitation that we said earlier. A book that's based on human intellect is inherently limited and only reaches a target audience. But every word in the Torah is the word of God. And every word and letter is applicable to each and every Jew. So you don't have that limitation. Because every word in the Torah, or the Medrash, or the Talmud, is the word of Hashem, the divine word, and every Jewish soul is totally rooted in every letter in the Torah. 
Because a Jew's connection, as it says in the Zohar, a Jew is connected to God through the Torah. The Torah connects the Jewish soul to God. Every part of the Torah connects the entire Jewish soul through the Torah. So every Jew has a portion. So these words of Torah, these words connect and relate to every single Jew. So a book that's based on, on the Torah, not just based on human logic or, or human experience, but it's based on the actual words of the Torah and the Talmud and the Midrash. The, this book should address each and every Jew and should be applicable to each and every Jew and should, every Jew should be able to relate to this book. Continue. As is known from the Holy Zohar, and since the Torah does contain what is pertinent to every Jew, those works founded on the Torah ought to appeal to every Jewish reader. I have to ask a question. What you say about the Torah makes sense, but why do, does the average person need Rashi and the rabbis to understand the Torah? We, I, I mean, I read it weekly, and I, then I have to go down to Rashi, and even then it's very deep. I mean... Uh, well, every, every word in the Torah, even every word of the oral Torah, was given to Moses at Sinai. Because what Rashi writes, what the Talmud writes, is not just the human words. Ultimately, what Rashi and Maimonides and, and the Taisvis and the Code of Jewish Law, every word of the Torah ultimately is divine. That this is exactly what God has spoken at Sinai. It's not just a man-made human thing. This is the belief, one of the 13 principles of Jewish faith, is that every word in the Torah is divine, every letter in the Torah. It's not just a man-made thing by wise rabbis. It's a divine, it's holy. These are written by God-fearing Jews with, why don't we understand with divine it? inspiration. When we read it, why, when the average person doesn't understand it when he well, reads it. Then it's a question of It has one meaning and goes into another, it goes on and on. It, it goes, it's, it's infinite. You just have to find the right teacher. But um, Rashi meant to, is meant to clarify it. And, and, and then there's commentaries on Rashi, etc. Uh, but the, the, a Jew approaches Torah as something divine, as something holy. It's not just a, a, a human interpretation. It's, it's divine. Every word, every letter in the Torah. And because it's written by divine inspiration, by holy Jews who lived holy lives, God-fearing Jews, great holy Jews. So, so the, every word in Torah is applicable and relevant to each and every Jew. So he say, he's saying, yet, nevertheless, that's true on a general basis, that the Jewish people as a whole collect, connect with God through the Torah. But here we're looking for, this individual Jew is looking for answers for his particular dilemma, for his particular situation. So what does it help him that he's studying holy words of Torah? They're holy, they're divine, and surely his soul understands and gets excited. But on the conscious level, he doesn't get excited. He doesn't relate to it. He doesn't connect with it. It doesn't inspire him. So what does it help him? Of course, every word of Torah, every letter of Torah is holy. When a Jew studies Torah, it connects him with God. Any Jew, every Jew, any part of Torah, it's holy words and it connects him. And on the deepest level, his soul surely understands the words of Torah. But he's, he doesn't have that clarity. He's confused. He's confounded. He's seeking. He's searching. He's restless. He needs help. He needs guidance. He needs a spiritual cure. 
So he won't find that in those holy words of Torah. He doesn't see how the Torah is relevant to him, how the Torah applies to him. He doesn't get excited about it. So it won't help him. So yes, potentially, those words of Torah are sweet, and those words of Torah have the answer to his particular dilemma. But he has no way of accessing it. So yes, this book is based on the holy words of the Torah, of the Midrash, of the Zohar, of the Talmud. And every time a Jew reads a word of Torah, it, it, it does something to your soul. Whether you understand, Whether you understand it or aware of it or not, it's like magical to the soul. But it doesn't help me on a conscious level. My, my soul, I'm not conscious of my soul's excitement. <laughs> Many Jews study Torah, they remain very unexcited, unenthusiastic, uninspired. They go through their entire life. And the whole Judaism is just mechanical and by rote and joyless and passionless. Even though the soul is on fire and the soul is excited, but they're totally unaware of it. It doesn't help them. It doesn't help me with my personal dilemma. So yes, I know that locked within this, these words are all the answers to all the problems that I have, but I can't access So what does it help? That's not what Rebbe is explaining. He's explaining the question of the Hasidim. So they have a very good question. That's the yet. Yet this is said in a general way for the Jewish people as a whole. This statement of the Zohar speaks of the bond between Jewry in general with the Torah in its entirety. It does not refer to a particular Jew seeking individual instruction in a specific area in the Torah. If a person needs, a particular Jew is looking for individual instruction, he has to know where to find it in the Torah. So within the entire Torah, he has to know which part of the Torah is going to help him with this particular issue. By studying any part of the Torah, how is that going to help him with this individual Jew, with this, his individual issue? But now he takes it a step further. He says, the truth is, it is true. It is true that the Torah lends itself to interpretation by the rule of general principles and specific applications. And these applications may be further broken down to even more specific details to apply to each individual soul in Israel rooted in the Torah. Thus, the Torah contains not only general instruction for the nation as a whole, but also specific instruction for each individual. Therefore, despite subjective differences between people, every Jew could theoretically find in such works instruction pertinent to his circumstances. The word Yisrael means every Jew has a letter. Yisrael is an acronym for Yesh, Shishim, Riboy, Isis, Latayra. That every Jew has a letter. There's 600,000 letters in the Torah. Every Jewish soul has a letter in the Torah. So every Jew has a particular path within the Torah. And that means that every letter and word in the Torah, every Jew has a particular key that unlocks his individual soul. The same word in the Torah has 600,000 interpretations. Everything in the Torah has 600,000 interpretations. Because you have 600,000 Jews, every individual soul has their own unique path in the Torah. And therefore, within these words of the Torah, the Jew could potentially find the key that will unlock his own personal treasure, unlock his own, his own, his own path. So that's true, theoretically. But not everyone is able to find that key. Otherwise, he wouldn't be confused in the first place. Not everyone is able to find their individual path within every word and letter in the Torah. 
how the Torah speaks to them directly and personally and individually, find their unique answers to their unique dilemma within this, this particular passage in the Torah. This is a tall order. Most Jews, left on their own device, will not find their way. I have to ask you a question. When you read the passage in the Torah and you go to Rashi to see the explanation, don't you tell yourself, I could never, I could never have gotten that from those words? What, what Rashi just explained, I, I could read it a million times, I could never have gotten that? That's, that's why Rashi is one of a kind. Even if you lived a million years, if we lived a million years, we would never come. That's the definition of a go'on, a go'on, a true genius. It's not a, it's not a, there's not a relative difference. You know, the difference between most teachers and students are very relative. If you had the years of training and the years of studying and the years of exposure, you can also give that lecture. Your teacher simply has a head start. And righteousness. But a, the definition of a genius is that even if you lived a million years and you studied, you studied it to death, you would never ever come to it. Einstein. <laughs> I mean, you had thousands of scientists, and they all looked at the same, studied the same reality. And yet, Einstein was the only one who, you know, radically revolutionized our whole understanding of reality. He asked questions no one else asked, and he totally questions the assumptions no one else questioned. So that's the real definition of a genius. That you can look at the same thing, you look at it for a thousand years, you'll never ever come to that that realization. And once it's explained to you, it's so clear, it's so obvious, it's so simple, it's so self-evident. But you need that genius to point it out to you. That's why there's no greater genius in Judaism like, as Rashi. Rashi was able to take the simplest meaning, to, to extract the simplest, most obvious, most self-evident meaning that escaped and eluded everyone else. And once Rashi points it out, of course, it's so obvious, it's so self-evident, it's so simple, it's, so, it's staring you in the face. But that's the genius of Rashi. That's why Rashi is called Rabban Shayisrael, the teacher of all the Jewish people. He's the chief rabbi of all the Jewish people. <coughs> Everyone learns Rashi, from the greatest genius to the simplest child. Because there's no one like Rashi. It's irreplaceable. So that's why we have good teachers. Hashem sends us good, good teachers. You're right. Without Rashi, we would never realize... So that was Hashem's intent, that we shouldn't be able to understand it? That was Hashem's intent, that Hashem sent us as good, as good teachers to point out to us and show us, show us this, the, the truest meaning and the simplest and the clearest. And the, yes, yes, we were blessed. Hashem blessed us with, with such teachers. Like Rashi and Maimonides and, and the, the Rebbe and the Baal Shem Tov and the Alter Rebbe. This is, uh, so but, so even, though, even though there is the answer our dilemma is found in every word of the Torah. Every word of the Torah contains the key to each individual soul. But it's beyond our capacity to find that key, to access, to access that key. You know, we would never in a million years discover, or left our own devices, discover how this passage is speaking to me without the help of a teacher. So even a book by, written by an author based on the Torah, on the Talmud, on the Medrash, this book cannot help me. Even though it's a perfect book, it has all the answers. It has the key to my treasure. But just reading the book will not help me. Just reading these passages and these divine words of the Torah 
even though on some deep level my soul does understand, but it doesn't help me on a conscious level, I remain unmoved and indifferent, uninspired. As confused and confounded as I was when I started reading the book. Okay, continue. Yet, not every man is privileged to recognize his specific place in the Torah so that he may know how to derive specific guidance from it. And now to strengthen the question even, even more so, he brings an analogy from the part of the Torah that is not mystical, the body of Torah. Even in the Torah, laws governing things forbidden and permissible which have been revealed to us and to our children equally, for despite the differences between generations, the law applies equally to all complete objectivity prevailing. So we know that the Torah, there's the body of the Torah and there's the soul of the Torah. The Zohar actually breaks it down into three parts. There are the garments, the outer garments, just like a person has outer garments. Then there's the body. And then there's the soul. Now there are many ways of knowing a person. I can know a person by their outer, gar outer garments. I can tell you what they're wearing, what their style of dress is. What, uh, what statements they're making with a kind of dress. But do I know the person? No. I don't know the person. I can't describe the person. I can only describe their clothes. Then there is, we know the person a little more intimately. I can tell you the color of their eyes. I can tell you the, the shape of their face, shape of their nose, their ears. I can describe the person a little more intimately. But that's also pretty superficial. Because do I know the person's mind? How they think? what inspires them, what, the, what they find entertaining, what causes them to laugh. Do I know their hearts, what they feel, what they love, what they're repulsed by, their personality, their character? And you can go deeper and deeper. Even if I know a person on a conscious level, but do I really know on a deeper level, the subconscious? So the Zohar says, there are many ways of looking at the Torah. There are those who take the Torah in very, the most external, superficial. The stories of the Torah. Nice stories. Interesting stories. And that's the, that's the end of the, for them, that's the whole Torah. Nice fable, nice fables, nice stories, interesting stories. But that's pathetic. A person who takes the Torah at face value and starts start making midrash on the Torah and the stories, that's the the clothes of the Torah. What is the body of Torah? The body of Torah are the laws, the rules, the halacha, the Talmud. Right and wrong, guilty, not guilty, kosher, not kosher, prohibited, uh, permitted, uh, pure, impure. And the entire code of Jewish law, that's the body of Torah. But that's also, that's also just the surface. Then there is the soul of the Torah. Mysticism. Kabbalah, Zohar. The soul matches the body. Every organ has a matching part of the soul. It matches. The brain has, the mind has the brain power of the soul that matches, matches. The mind matches the brain. Power of vision matches the eye. So the, there is the mystical, mystical part, the spiritual part of the Torah. And then you can go deeper and deeper. Within mysticism itself, you can go deeper and deeper. The secrets of secrets, like, like going into the subconscious. 
That's the, the Hasidic delving into the depth of mysticism. It's even going beyond mysticism. is going into the core and essence. The secret of secrets. Just, that's the Hasidic teaching. So he says, let's bring an example just from the external, from the surface, from the body of Torah. We find that even within the body of Torah, there are legitimate differences of opinion. There are arguments, differences of opinion, different ways of looking at things, of seeing things. So although every Jew has a portion in the entire Torah, but yet there are Jewish souls that belong to this school of thought and see things this way, and yet there are Jewish souls who see things the other way. And the classical example of it, of course, is the arguments between Hillel and Shammai. You have the liberals and you have the conservatives. And it's not just in politics. It's in every issue in life. You have the liberal point of view and you have the conservative point of view. And they're both legitimate. Because God created two types of personalities, two types of minds. Those who view everything, all of reality, from a liberal assumption and those who view everything from a conservative assumption. There's no right or wrong. They're both two legitimate paths, two legitimate ways of approaching life, of seeing things. One comes from an underlying assumption of a liberal underlying assumption, and one comes from a very conservative underlying assumption. They're both rich, they're both genuine and legitimate. And God created the world, He created the world, He created both of these paths. So you have a Hillel, who generally is more liberal and kind and always tries to find the, what's permissible. And you have a Shammai who is with the conservative bent, who demands excellence and is always looking to toughen the requirements, always looking for excellence, rejects mediocrity, and therefore more things are forbidden. Not everyone is worthy, not everything is worthy of being elevated, not everything is worthy of being engaged, etc. And these are two legitimate paths within Judaism, within halacha. Two opinions, Torah opinions. And although every part of the Torah belongs to each and every Jew, even a Jew from, this, from the school of Hillel, even Hillel, when he's studying Shammai's opinion, that is also Torah, and he has to make a blessing. Because it's divine, and it's Torah, and it belongs to him. But still, that's not his path. He has a different path. Hillel's predominant path is one of kindness. The exact opposite of Shammai. So we see that although every Jew inherits the entire Torah, and every Jew can find his own particular path and the key to unlock his own mystery within each and every word and letter in the Torah, yet we find within the Torah itself that the Torah says, this portion, this part of the Torah is more for you. This is your path. This is how you, what you should focus and concentrate on. And this path in the Torah belongs more to, the, to another soul, another type of soul. And if this is true on the external part of the Torah, the body of Torah, how much more so that this is true when you, when you reach deeper inside to the inner, the mystical, the spiritual. How many more paths are there? Every soul has their own subtle path to God and every soul has to find their own way to God and their own relationship and love and, and sense of awe of God. How much more so that you have such a, such a diversity? And therefore a path that works for this particular author, even though he's quoting 
the rabbis and the midrash and the Talmud and he's quoting the Zohar and he's quoting the, the, uh, the, the 24 books of the Torah, of the Bible, the written Torah. Yet nevertheless, this is a path for him, but it's not necessarily a path for another individual Jew who perhaps is cut out from a whole different cloth, is cut out from a whole different, his soul is rooted in a whole different, a whole different part of godliness. This, this rabbi, this author is more in touch with God's strength and this rabbi is more in touch with God's love. And this rabbi is more in touch with God's aspect of compassion. And that's the root of his soul. And this soul has another root. And that soul has a third root. So the portions of Torah that this rabbi chose, and this portion of Torah elicit a response within, within this particular rabbi, won't elicit the same response for another Jew. Because this Jew has to focus and concentrate on a different path within the Torah frame, one that speaks to his soul, to his situation, to his temperament, to his way of thinking, to his mind, to his individuality, to his character, to his situation. So he's strengthening the question of the Hasidim, that even a book that's based on Torah is also inherently limited. Although every Jew has a portion, every individual Jew has an individual portion, every word and letter in the entire Torah. But nevertheless, we find even within the overt part of the Torah, the revealed part of the Torah, the body of Torah, we see legitimate differences. And the Torah incorporates these differences. So how much more so when we come to the esoteric and the intimate and the private and the deeper inner depth of the soul of Torah? Even in these laws, we witness arguments from one extreme to the other between Tanaim and Amoraim. With one, Tana for instance, declaring perfectly permissible that which another Tana rules absolutely forbidden. Yet these as well as those are the words of the living God. In this phrase, the words living God appears in the plural form. The Talmud says whenever there's an argument in the Torah, it's not like one is right and one is wrong. Shammai is right and Hillel is right. Both of them are the word of God. When God spoke at Sinai, God wrote in the Torah, the words in the Torah contain both interpretations. Because God wrote the Torah in such a way that you could legitimately interpret this way and you can legitimately interpret this way. We're talking about legitimate arguments within the framework of Allah, of Judaism. There are rules that God said how you're supposed to decode the Torah. We're not discussing here Reformed Judaism or Conservative Judaism where, you can, where every opinion is a legitimate opinion. We're talking about two opinions within the framework of Judaism that both rabbis believe that every word and letter in the Torah is divine. But within the framework of Judaism itself, within the frame, framework of Allah, of how God, the rules that God set down, how you're supposed to decode the message of the Torah, God allowed for both interpretations, because they're both legitimate. But the, but the Talmud doesn't say, Elu ve'elu, these and these are the words of Kel Chai in the singular, the single God. It says Elohim in the plural. Elohim Chayim, the living God. Why in the plural form? Because the diversity of opinions in the halacha, stems from plurality in the source of life of the souls of Israel, within the living God, i.e. within God as He is the source of life. The souls, and hence also their source, so to speak, are divided into three general categories, right, left, and center, representing kindness, chesed, severity, gevurah, and beauty, tiferet. So within the Godhead itself, in the world of emanation, the way God emanates from his infinite self 
and he emanated the ten spherot, and so we can speak supposedly of God's personality and character, God's wisdom, God's understanding, God's knowledge, God's love, God's strength, God's compassion, which are basically divided generally into three categories, because you have the right side of the person, you have the left side, you have the right brain, you have the right hand, which is kindness, the right brain, the creative mind, and then you have the right leg going forward. And then you have the left side, which is the left brain, the analytical mind, the logical mind, and then you have the left hand, which is restraint, discipline, uh, limitation, def definition, and then you have the left leg, which is restraint also. And uh, you have one foot on the accelerator, one foot on the brake. The right foot is on the accelerator and the left foot is on the brake. Um, and then you have the center. The center is the integrative mind, the spine. You have the heart, the torso, the body, the heart. And then, and then you have the, uh, the, or the male organ. So these are the three basic categories, right, left, and center. So the, there are souls that are rooted in the right side of God. These are souls that are filled with love, that are created with a liberal bent generous, generosity, created with a liberal assumption of life, um, always trying to find the positive, the Abraham approach to life, I believe it's like approach to life, finding the love and the goodness and the kindness, even the most unlikeliest places, because every creature is a creature of God, and therefore finding some spark of godliness in all of God's creation, finding the love and the goodness, digging it up in the most un unlikely, unsuspected places. Then you have the exact opposite approach, the left side. The Isaac approach. Intensity. Heroism. Demanding. The one who climbs Mount Everest. Who's one in a million. Who leaves everyone else in the dust. Who can't stand mediocrity. Has no tolerance for, for superficiality. Who's constantly striving and yearning and pushing himself to the limits. And pushing all those around him to the limits. The teacher who pushes you to the limits. The teacher who makes you uncomfortable who disturbs you, whose job in life is not to make you feel loved and comfortable. His job in life is to disturb you, to wake you up, to get you out of your um, sense of smugness and contentness, self-satisfaction. The, the Kotzke Rebbe, that approach. And then you have the central approach, the center, those who are rooted in the center of the Godhead, compassion, integration. And, um, and therefore, we have different approaches within Torah. There are those who understand the Torah. There were those rabbis who understand the Torah. Hillel understood the Torah in a liberal way, and Shammai understood the Torah in a more conservative way. Because for a rabbi, for a rabbi to give out a halachic ruling, a rabbi cannot give out a halachic ruling unless the rabbi truly understands the halach. He can't just take it on faith. The Torah is meant to be studied and to be learned and to be digested and to be understood. So a rabbi, a genuine rabbi, who is halachic authority, is one who will study the issue to the best of his ability with a prayer in his heart that God should guide him in the right direction. But it has to make sense to him. In his mind, it has to make sense. He has to understand the issue, he has to understand the question, he has to understand the answer, he has to understand all the, the, the sources, how he derives the halacha. And then and only then could he give out Allah Glu. So because his mind is wired in a certain way, God created his mind wired in a certain way. He thinks in a certain way. He understands reality in a certain way. 
And where does that come from? The fact that his mind is wired in that way. What's the ultimate root, the ultimate source of that? Because his soul is rooted in the divine attribute of love. Therefore, he sees everything in life from that perspective. While Shammai, whose soul is rooted in the divine attribute of strength, of intensity, therefore his mind is wired in that way. His mind is wired conservatively. He thinks differently about everything. Shammai would not be honest. If Shammai would, would try to see things like Hillel, it's not, that's not him. It's not the way he makes sense of reality. It's not the way his mind works. So that is the legitimate way for Shammai, based on his mind, the way he's wired, the way he thinks, the way he processes information, the way he comprehends it. Okay, continue. Those souls which are rooted in the attribute of kindness tend to be lenient in their halachic decisions, being inclined toward kindness which dictates that the object be declared permissible and thus capable of being sanctified if used for a sacred purpose, and so on, with the attribute of severity dictating stringencies in halachic decisions and the attribute of beauty mediating as is known. In his Igaret HaKodesh, the Alter Rebbe applies this principle to the legal arguments between the schools of Shammai and Hillel. The school of Shammai was usually stringent, because their spiritual source was the attribute of severity. The school of Hillel, usually lenient because of their source in the attribute of kindness. In certain decisions, however, their positions were reversed, for the realm of holiness is governed by the principle of mutual incorporation, hitkalelut, with kindness containing elements of severity, and vice versa. In, within a human being, people who are conservative are consistently conservative. People who are liberal are consistently, are consistently liberal, whether it's appropriate or not. Sometimes it's appropriate to be liberal, and sometimes it's appropriate to be conservative. You know, there are times that you need a, a church during war. As soon as the war was over, he was thrown out of office. His qualities, his temperament, is not what you need during peacetime. While the person who has the opposite temperament may be perfect for peacetime, but at war, it will be a disaster. That's not who you need in office at, at such a time. So a person who is just on a human level, someone who is conservative is always conservative, and sometimes they perform brilliantly, and sometimes they fail miserably, and vice versa. A person who's liberal always has a liberal bent, and sometimes they perform brilliantly, and sometimes it's a disaster. Wrong time, wrong place, wrong idea. However, when it comes to holiness, when it comes to Torah, Torah is divine. Torah is not limited. And therefore, Torah has that perfect blend. It's not egotistical. It's not just based on human nature, the way your mind is wired. It's based on, on the infinite, on the divine. And therefore, there's a flexibility. That even someone who is predominantly kind and gentle and generous, there are times that he will be conservative. So sometimes we find Hillel and Shammai reversing roles. Where Hillel is stringent, it's a minority. But sometimes we find that. Hillel is stringent and Shammai, Shammai is lean. Because in holiness there is a flexibility. Like Abraham with the test of the Akedah. That Abraham, who couldn't hurt a fly, who was the epitome of love, suddenly was ready to sacrifice his son act of heroism which went again the whole, against the whole grain of his nature 
Because in holiness, there's flexibility. In holiness, it's not just, my kindness is not limited to my nature because it makes me feel good or because I'm naturally inclined to be kind. My kindness derives from a much deeper place. It's rooted in the divine. And therefore, since the divine is infinite and undefined, therefore it, it carries over that my own kindness also goes way beyond my own limitation or my own natural inclination. My kindness, even when my natural inclination doesn't demand for me to be kind, I go that extra mile. And there are situations when the true thing to do is to go against my nature and to do things that are opposite of my nature. And suddenly Avram, the kindest human being ever, suddenly became this tough, demanding, uncharacteristic of Avram. Because this is the sign of holiness, flexibility. A person who's rigid, a person who's always liberal and kind, you know it's not coming from a divine place. It's nature. That's your inclination. And vice versa. So this is the sign that Hillel and Shammai, it wasn't about ego. It wasn't just based and rooted in human, human prejudice, human bias. It was rooted in the divine, on truth. Torah is based on truth, on the infinite. And therefore, they had the flexibility that Shammai sometimes was able to see the, take the exact opposite route, to be the liberal, and, and Hillel was the one who took the exact opposite route and acted as, as, as the conservative. Now, if one's individual spiritual tendencies affect the way he views the Torah, even in the areas of the halakha, which is intrinsically objective... We're dealing with kosher, not kosher, guilty, not guilty, pure, impure. You're dealing here with, with technical, objective realities. And yet... There are two legitimate opinions. I can see it this way, I can see it the other way. So if that's true when it comes to the body of Torah, how much more so? Surely, how much more so will subjective differences play a role in matters hidden to God Almighty? Namely, to one's awe and love of God, which are subjective by their very nature, for they express themselves in the mind and heart of each person according to his own measure, his shi'ur, according to his heart's estimation, Hashara, and according to the gate, Shar, that he makes in his heart, to permit his intellectual understanding of godliness to pervade his heart and generate within him a love and awe of God. So, how much more so when it comes to spiritual matters, for godliness to truly touch you as an individual, to really get to you, and a very intimate level, and a very deep level, profound, genuine level. Each soul is so different. Our minds are so different. Our hearts are so different. Instead of two paths or three paths, you have literally 600,000 paths. You have 600,000 minds. 600,000 types of love of God. 600,000 types of awe of God. So what inspired one author? Or the portion of the Torah that's connected to that author is not necessarily the, the portion of the Torah that's connected to me. If even, even in, in the overt part of the Torah, the body of the Torah, the portion of Torah of Shammai is not so applicable to the souls that are rooted in the, in the school of Hill. And they have to focus and predominantly study the Torah of Hill, not the Torah of Shammai. Even though it's part of Torah, they have to make a blessing of the Torah before they study it. Every letter of the Torah belongs to every Jew. Even the Torah of Shammai belongs to the school of Hillel, belongs to each and every Jew individually as well. But nevertheless, you have a portion of the Torah that that's your path, that's your prevailing path, that's the path you have to focus on.
So if that's true in the, in the overt Torah, in the body of Torah, how much more so when it comes to the mystical part of Torah, the intimate part of Torah, how much more so that every Jewish soul has their own individual path, that part of the Torah that talks to them, that really gets, gets to them. And to use an analogy, the Alter Rebbe explains elsewhere, the Talmud says that every Jew has a mitzvah that really talks to you. One rabbi asked the other, your father, which mitzvah was he very careful in? The word that he used for careful in Hebrew is zahir, in Aramaic, which also means illuminates. That although every Jew is obligated to do, perform all 630 mitzvahs, every Jew has one mitzvah that really does it for them. That's their mitzvah. They're crazy about that mitzvah. That mitzvah talks to them. That mitzvah inspires them. That mitzvah is the gateway for all the other mitzvahs. It illuminates their soul. Because that mitzvah talks to them more than any other mitzvah. It's inexplicable. It's not logical. It's not rational. But that mitzvah speaks to them. How do you know which mitzvah? Everyone feels it. Just like you have a holiday. You can't explain it. Every Jew has a holiday that really, from all the holidays, this is their favorite holiday. This holiday... They wait all year for this holiday. This holiday gives them enough inspiration for, to last them for the rest of the year. One person is Hanukkah, another person it could be Yom Kippur. Everyone has their Hanukkah, their, their holiday. Sukkah is Pesach. You just gave it away. <laughs> <laughs> of course, all children love the Hanukkah, of course. But every, it's, it's a mystical thing. It's an inexplicable thing because each one of us is so unique. So the same, although we all have 613 mitzvot, each one of us has a mitzvah. There are those who just love visiting the sick. It's their mitzvah. That's their mitzvah. This inspires them. This is, the, this is their connection, the link to all of Judaism. Everyone has their mitzvah. Another one is studying Torah, another one is teaching Torah. Another, everyone has their thing that really gets to them and really grabs them and opens them up to have a relationship with God and opens them up to all 613 mitzvahs. This is inexplicable. It's not a rational, logical thing. But each of our souls is so different. So each one of us has a unique path. So yes, the entire mitzvah, all 600 mitzvot are applicable and relevant to each and every Jew. But within the mitzvah itself, each and every Jew has a legitimate path that's unique, that really will open up the key. This is the key that will unlock your root, your soul, your particular soul, your individual soul, because each Jew has a path. The whole essence of the Tanya, the whole point of the Tanya, as we discussed in earlier classes, is that each and every Jew has to develop their own personal, individual relationship with God. So if each individual Jew has to develop their own personal relationship to God, that Jew has to be able to find that part of the Torah that talks directly to them. So therefore, how could you write a book as brilliant as the author is, and even if the author is basing his book on the words of Torah, the divine, holy words of the Torah, from the Midrash, from the Talmud, from the Zohar, from the, from the 24 books of the written Torah, from Rashi, from Imanides, whatever it may be, but nevertheless, how do I know that this is the key that will unlock my particular door? Maybe it's the equivalent of, of Hillel reading Shammah. That's not going to do it for, this, for the soul of Hillel. A soul that belongs to the school of Hillel. A soul that belongs to the school of Hillel has to follow the path of Hillel, not the path of Shammah. So this author may have a path to God and he's quoting the Talmud and he's quoting the Midrash and he's quoting the Zohar and it's all based on divine holy words. But it's not talking to me. It's not my path. It's not my individual path. Because I have to find my own individuality, my own personality and character. What will 
unlock it for me? What will do it for me? So unless I speak to the teacher face to face, if the teacher speaks, meets me and encounters me, the teacher can help me find the right part of the Torah that really speaks to me. But that can only be done in person. You can't just hand me a book and say, oh, you want to find your individual path to God? No problem, here's a book. You don't have to, we don't have to talk. We don't have to meet. You'll find all the answers. And this is one book written for all the Hasidim. For 600,000 Jews. Two Jews, three opinions. One book is going to unlock my deepest, most intimate place that really unlock my soul, open me up to Yiddishkeit and to godliness. I will find my particular path within this book. Let us conclude in top of 23. As the Zohar comments on the verse, her husband is known by the gates. The Zohar interprets the husband of this verse as a reference to God who is the husband of the community of Israel. We know and attach ourselves to him by the Sha'arim, which the Zohar interprets in the sense of Sha'ar, gate, Shi'ur, measure, and Hash'ara, estimation, as explained above. At any rate, we see that being inspired in the love and fear of God is intrinsically subjective. To return to the thread of our earlier argument, if even in the objective Halakha, we find differences of opinion rising from the variety in human nature, we will surely find a variety of response to inspirational literature. The Hasidic saying quoted above that seeing in books, even Torah books, is not the same as hearing inspiration from a teacher seems quite justified. How then could the Alter Rebbe now propose to offer the Tanya to his followers as a substitute for the personal guidance that he had been giving them until this time? In answer, the Alter Rebbe states that the Tanya is addressed to his chassidim, with whom he has a long-standing relationship, and whose specific needs for guidance are known to him from their personal audiences with him. They will therefore find the advice provided in the Tanya relevant to their individual needs. Chassidim would add that this includes all those who study the Tanya. The Alter Rebbe knew them all and addressed himself to each one's needs in the service of God, as though they had spoken to him in private audience. As the Rebbe Rashab phrased it, to study the Tanya is to converse with the Alter Rebbe. Let's, uh, oh, you can't leave. let's stop there. A little suspense until next week. Oh, I'm not going to leave. Does he answer that question in the chat? He answers, and it's a very, very profound answer. Many people read it very superficially, but the, he's, it's a, it's a, and typically of the Alter Rebbe, it's so subtle mm -hmm. and so modest and so, with, you don't even realize it's so revolutionary what he's saying. And he's really explaining that the Tanya really is a unique safer, like no other kind, like, like, like no other safer, something that's very special. And this is the foundation of the Tanya, the foundation of the first like, chapter, the equivalent of Genesis, foundation of the whole Torah, and also the foundation of the whole Chabad Hasidic system and philosophy. To be continued next week. Mm -hmm.